What up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Comrades Classroom Podcast. On it, we sit down with a panel of sex workers and grassroots organizers to talk about decarceration of the sex industry and how idealism on the left produces harmful discourse that minimizes the material conditions of sex workers and erases their liberatory organizing. To support the Comrades Classroom and the People's Coalition, share our work with friends, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your support allows us to keep the people fed. Free the land, free the people. announcement to make. Jesus was black, Ronald Reagan was the devil, and the government is lying about 9-11. Thank you for your time and good night. having that dream where you made the white people riot, weren't you? But I was telling the truth. How many times have I told you you better not even dream about telling white folk the truth? You understand me? Shoot. Making white people riot. You better learn how to lie like me. I'm going to find me a white man and lie to him right now. I am the stone that the builder refused. I am the visual, the inspiration that made ladies sing the blues. I'm the spark that makes your idea bright. The same spark that lights the dark so that you can know your left from your right. I am the ballad in your box, the bullet in the gun, the inner glow that lets you know to call your brother's son. The story that just begun, the promise of what's to come. And I'm going to remain a soldier till the war is won. Hello to all, uh, and thank you for sitting down with us today. To begin, we would love you all to introduce yourselves and open up our discussion with thoughts around recent discourse uh, that's happening around sex work, discourse that connects with abolition, harm reduction, decriminalization, and decarceration. We would love to hear what you all believe and know to be dangers of approaching this topic with idealism. In other words, how do we avoid bad discourse around sex work and liberation theory? Okay, I'll be the guinea pig and go first. (laughs) Um, Hello, my name is Adri. That's spelled A-D-R-I-E. I am a sociology grad student in Pittsburgh. My research focus is the ways that online platforms and social media sites um, use content moderation, specifically affecting sex workers and also financial institutions because financial technology has become a huge part of online existence. Um, I'm also a freelance writer and a portrait photographer. Um, So I think that's it. But in order, in answer to the first question, I guess, I think the issue with idealism, especially when it comes to um, leftist, however you want to define that, I think the issue with idealism is that it's simply not realistic. Um, We know that we don't live in an ideal world because we live in a capitalist world. So when you're talking about sex work, especially a lot of the conversation always comes back to, well, in an ideal world, 
Yes, but that's not the world that we live in. We live in a world where your value and your worth is inherently tied to your ability to commodify your labor. And for a lot of people, especially trans people, black people, indigenous people, um, single parents, however in-depth you want to get, for a lot of people that don't have traditional employment protections, it's simply not realistic to, I guess, put moral and value judgments on how they earn a living. Um, they don't have access to the traditional economy. Um, disabled people, too. Um, I mean, I have a developmental disability, learning disability, but it's impossible for me to drive because my anxiety is overwhelming. So as a full-time student, sex work is really the only way that I'm able to earn a living outside of freelancing. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know how much I hate freelancing because I'm always chasing people down to pay me. And the nice thing about sex work is that I don't have to do that because you don't get anything if you don't pay me. Mm -hmm. Like I might hit you, but um, unless you're into that, you're not really getting anything out of that arrangement. So you have to pay me and I don't have to track you down 30 or 60 days later to get paid for something that I already did. And I think that for a lot of people that exist on the margins, sex work is ideal because it allows you to really work for yourself in ways that traditional self-employment, it just doesn't give you that kind of freedom or that kind of flexibility. Um, I'll jump in um if I'm not stepping on you Adri um, oh hi I'm Lauren Kylie that's a l-a-u-r-e-n-k-i-l-e-y um I've been a sex worker and a sex work organizer for well over 10 years in various capacities um and Going off about the sort of, not sort of, but the very big disconnect between idealism and what the actual lived experience of people who have done work or do work in sex industries is in terms of how to avoid bad discourse, honestly, I think the, like, my gut reaction is to say, just shut the fuck up most of the time because so much discourse that I hear, especially from outside of sex working communities is almost always ends up talking over sex workers about their communities. There's an assumption that there is this sex work community that applies to like all of us. And in some ways, there, you know, there's some obvious commonalities, but it's, but you, you really can't just apply a discourse to an entire set of policies and lives. And so we're already criminalized, uh, like basically under idealism, because those are not criminal policies that are based in any reality of effectiveness unless unless of course the stated goal is to lock up a bunch of poor people especially black people especially trans people it's the only thing prostitution policies are effective at um 
so the idealism is there in the policies already and sex workers for the most part know that and know how those policies affect their communities like living in LA was very very different than living in rural Florida has been that's it's a completely different world and the way we do sex work is on completely different sites in completely different languages in some cases and when i it's when i have talked to leftists about sex work policy that have been outside of sex working communities the overall response I've heard is, no, I know better. No, I know better because this person told me their traumatic story. Um, I went down, I'm like, I vividly remember being at Occupy with other sex workers and having some, just some dude come up and tell me, um, no, actually, I know those women doing sex works. And I was like, I am that woman. Like, it, it just... <sighs> So often, so much of the discourse is so wrapped up in being theoretically correct that it just seems to divorce itself from the actual people. Uh, I can I can jump in there. I'm Gemma, G-E-M-M-A. I'm a sex worker. I've been a sex worker for about a decade now. Um, and I do think a lot of people come in uh, to this discourse with discourse with the assumption that sex workers aren't organizing and that we're too stupid to know what we need. And that, that's even, even more so true uh, if we're talking about uh, sex workers in the global South. And the funny thing is, you know, it really takes about one minute on Google to learn that we're organizing all over the world. We know what we need. Our demands are, we have uniform demands everywhere in the world. But you get these people, you know, who've never, in most cases, had to make the choice of whether they're going to, you know, go hungry or not have a place to live or sell sex, uh, you know, coming in and assuming that they're like purely academic analysis of something that we're actually living is somehow more correct. And, and as been said, it, you know, the, that sort of purely academic thing, there's just no point. Like if theory doesn't result in practice, what, what's the point? You know, um, we're not we're not a symbol we're of something. We're not theoretical. You know, we're real people. And, you know, there's we have real material problems, which is, you know, uh, that we get unbanked, that we lose our housing or can't get housing, that we get our children taken away. Uh, you know, we need services. It, it doesn't matter whether you think it's gross or right or wrong or whatever uh, to do what we do. What matters is that that people get the services they need. And I feel like that that really gets thrown out the window, uh, you know, and it's, it's for the same reason, you know, the, the people on the left hate us for the same reason reactionaries do. They think we're gross. Um, and it's, you know, just just this thing about uh, categorizing uh, you know, people from oppressed gender groups into, uh, you know, the categories of good and bad and, and maintaining that hierarchy with which a lot of these people are benefiting from uh, in one way or another. Hello, hello. My name is Marla, M-A-R-L-A. I'm an unemployed stripper. I uh, began my unemployment at the beginning of COVID. My club shut down March 7th. So I just celebrated my one year unemployment anniversary, go me. And I have a particular perspective on reproductive justice issues coming from the rural South. 
I'm a proud born and raised Texan. And I bring that perspective with me in reading Marxist theory and applying that Marxist theory uh, into practice as a sex worker and in sex working communities. With the dangers of approaching this topic with idealism, I think there's a certain type of idealism that says that post-revolution, there will be no sex work, that post-revolution, there will be no prostitution, there will be no porn, there will be no other forms of sex work. And I think the danger in that lies in the fact that it works backwards. It's forward-looking without trying to understand and work with the material conditions that sex workers face today. It says that if we start from the position of a post-revolution where there is no prostitution or any form of sex work, then that they they take that as the correct position and that any organizing that strays from that ultimate goal is um is is not considering the well-being of sex workers is pro-capitalist is pro-imperialist when in reality what we need to deal with today coming from uh, the perspective of an American leftist is build the left, and that includes bringing sex workers into the fold. It includes thinking about what is going to be a message and a strategy that wins sex workers over to the left, that wins sex workers over to socialism and communism. And I'm sorry, I don't think that saying your job will not exist in this far off future that none of us will see, that all of us will be dead when we reach, by the time that we reach the end of capitalism, by the time that we reach the socialist utopia in which our jobs don't exist, that doesn't seem like a winning message to win over sex workers to socialism or to communism. And so I reject that type of idealism that looks forward, all the way forward past what we will see in our lifetimes without trying to work with the organizing that sex workers are involved in right now. I think the problem with this type of idealism is that, like Gemma said, it completely ignores all the organizing that sex workers are doing right now, completely ignores all the theory that sex workers are trying to put into practice right now. And anybody who is ignoring the organizing that sex workers are doing right now, I don't think is in the best position to say, what is best for the left, what is best for communism, what is best for socialism, because to me, my top priority is winning sex workers over to socialism. That is my top priority, and that's the position that I approach other people with, sex workers and non-sex workers. What is going to win sex workers over to socialism? I don't think it's saying your job isn't going to exist in the future. I think it's saying that you deserve safety, you deserve respect, rights, dignity, in your conditions as you know it today. It means saying that you have a collective capacity to struggle against your own exploitation. And that's what I want people to recognize is our collective capacity to struggle. We're not all just this uh, flat type of victim where we all need to be rescued from our respective industries. I completely reject that. I think we all have the capacity to struggle and it's through this type of conversation through this type of dialogue and theory that can ultimately lead us to a better form of organizing that says to sex workers, I believe you can struggle alongside every other worker. I just want to chime in, I guess, respond to that, because I think a part of the issue with idealism, something that comes up a lot is the commodify, or excuse me, the commodification of sex is this newfangled thing that's ruining society. And the truth is that capitalism is new. Selling sex is not. People have been selling sex 
we honestly don't even know how long because it predates written records. <laughs> but what I mean, and even if you don't define it as selling sex, because money is a new, relatively new invention, but people have been trading sex for material compensation, be that food or housing, whatever it is, longer than humans have had the capacity to write down their own histories. So this idea that sex work, the exploitation of people who trade sex is this unique thing that will be dismantled with the eradication of capitalism. It's simply unrealistic and it's not based in any historical facts. And I think that's part of the issue with idealism is leftists have bought into the propaganda of capitalism in which it's easier to say that we are part of the problem instead of acknowledging that you've, you drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> you have internalized the propaganda and you've internalized the narrative that it's simply easier to control women than it is to attack the source of the problem. First off, um, thank you. Thank you all. That was, um, that was uh, beautiful. Um, and much needed. So the, the, the follow-up question or what, what I'm kind of pulling the bad discourse around liberation theory um, and sex work, um, I'm gonna, is for folks need to listen. <laughs> folks need to stop talking uh, when they don't know. Um, and, and as you said, you all are organized, been organized um, and should be centered in these conversations. Um, what does decriminalization mean to you all? and possibly um, just adding to that and, and decarceration. I know you all spoke a little on policy stuff. Yeah, go ahead, Marla. In terms of decriminalization, I'll speak specifically from a stripper's perspective. So the function of police in our society is to what? It's to protect the elite class and it's to protect capital. It's to it isn't to uh, save women from uh, crime. It isn't to uh, protect anybody from violent circumstances. It is to protect capital and the elite class. And all of us sitting right here, uh, we, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, we don't have any control over capital and we're not part of the elite class. So we already know for a fact that the police are not working in our favor, right? They're actively working against us and they see us as deviants and they see us as threats against capital and the elite class. So I wanna start from there, from understanding the role of police in society, because I think this is what a lot of anti-sex worker uh, and anti-sex work leftists get wrong now is that they misrepresent the position of police in society. They see sex workers as so um, brutalized, uh, victims of violence unable to speak for themselves. And then they point to the American police force and say, these are the people that we think uh, can help uh, protect uh, victims of violence and victims of sexual crimes. And we know for a fact that's not true. 
Um, I don't know how many sex workers have to be uh, brutalized and extorted and raped by police for everybody to understand that the police are not here to protect us and trying to put them in, trying to give them power to put them in a position to try to protect us is actively working against our own interests. And it's working against the safety of sex workers. The police are not here to protect us. That's point number one. So from a stripper's perspective, right, I would encourage people to read about their local strip club raids, whether that's in their state or their particular city. And I want them to understand that strip clubs, uh, particularly from the uh, perspective of local churches, local religious organizations, and the police, they are seen as, and I quote, hubs of human trafficking, right? So the police and the organizations that work as arms of the police and the state, such as churches, uh, see strip clubs as just, they see them as brothels. They see them as uh, houses of sexual deviancy. And we have to do something about that, right? The idea that they could just leave us alone and let us be strippers in the strip club is completely unfathomable to the state and to the police and to everybody who works in their favor and gives them power. Leaving us alone is unfathomable. So what, in the, what ends up happening? in these strip club raids. So what happens is that under the pretense of quote unquote human trafficking, police carry out different forms of surveillance and rape of sex workers, right? They go into these clubs and they pay for sexual services and they uh, surveil the workers in the club, take notes of who's doing what. And under the pretense of quote unquote human trafficking, they go into these clubs and they arrest strippers for solicitation, for prostitution, um, even things for loitering outside of the club. And they, what do they do with these women? They take away their money. They give them criminal records that will follow them for the rest of their lives and harm their other perspectives for employment. And they try to give us some sort of quote unquote exit program to stay out of the industry. But what does this exit program look like? It looks like minimum wage jobs where we can't afford our rent, can't afford to feed our kids, can't afford to take care of ourselves, pay down our debts, pay down our student loans, cannot afford to live, right? So from a stripper's perspective, I look at decriminalization, one from the perspective that I already know that police will not help us, Two, that the police are already conceiving of us as victims unable to act or speak on our own behalf and that they completely miss the mark on what would, quote unquote, help us, right? So whenever you're a stripper working in a club, I know for me personally, there was a raid on in a Fort Worth strip club. I'm, I'm currently out of Dallas. I'm based out of Dallas. And in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex in July of 2019, there was a strip club raid on a strip club um, over in Fort Worth. And I remember in the weeks after that, I was working at my club in Dallas and management had put up posters all over the dressing room with articles about this strip club raid, reminding us that if anything were to happen, that if we were to commit any criminal act, that the club would not be liable and that we'd basically be shit out of luck and on our own, right? So I'm going into the club every day, seeing these posters on the walls and thinking, what if the next club raid is at my club, right? You'll see at club raids all across the nation that you don't actually have to even engage in prostitution in order to be arrested. If I tell an undercover police officer in the club, let's go to VIP, we'll have some fun, and I could 
through vague language, implicate myself in solicitation accidentally, regardless of whether or not I intended to engage in prostitution, because that's how these club raids work. They are seeking to criminalize you. You don't actually have to be uh, doing anything involved in prostitution in order to be arrested, right? And that's part of the role of the police is policing, right? It's to police our sexualities because they see this as deviants. So from the perspective in the club, I'm looking at all this and saying, how does this help any of us? And truth be told, it doesn't. Because when you look at the realities of what happens when police arrest strippers in strip club raids, all that happens is that strippers lose their job, they get a criminal record, they get their money taken away from them, and sometimes the club itself is closed and they lose their employment completely. I don't see how that helps any of us. And that's what I would encourage other people to think about is what is going to help us because it's not police. And so when it comes to decriminalization, I want every single crime related to sex, prostitution, solicitation, and loitering completely off the books. That's what decriminalization means to me as a stripper. So also just to introduce sort of how this ends up affecting other people who aren't sex workers. I think this is really important too, because, uh, you know, we've been seeing a lot of this around the internet lately, like this fantasy that who's going to end up, you know, uh, being arrested is these horrible, predatory, rich white guys. And that's not what happens at all. So when any element of our work is criminalized, who ends up you know, paying the price for that, first of all, is sex workers ourselves. So if you look at a, a great book, I'd recommend uh, to everybody is this book, Revolting Prostitutes, that sort of um, outlines how these different regulatory systems, uh, you know, work throughout the world. And when, when you criminalize, uh, for example, let's say you want to criminalize uh, pimping, who's that going to end up affecting? Is that actually going to end up affecting management or is that going to, you know, end up pe affecting people's partners, you know, especially if they happen to be black men um, who, and, or, or other sex workers, like holding somebody else's money for them working outside. Someone's going to go, you know, get in a car with a, with a customer, you know, you don't want to take your money with you. You give it to someone else to hold it. The person holding your money is now guilty of sex trafficking. My friend gives me a ride to work, you know, so I don't have to walk that that could be, you know, uh, considered sex trafficking in some jurisdictions. Um, and then then also, you know, people end up getting arrested for for prostitution who aren't even doing sex work. And, and uh, you know, some people might have heard of this uh, phenomenon of walking while trans. And, and the idea here is that, you know, if you're a trans woman, especially, you know, black trans women, trans women of color walking down the street, maybe you have two condoms in your bag. Maybe, you know, you've never done sex work in your life or you don't have to happen to be working then, you know, you're going to get brought in for sex work simply for walking down the street and being, you know, what is considered to be the kind of person who would be a sex worker. And and to, to some extent, you know, this phenomenon um, applies to clients, too. So even if we totally put aside whether or not it's it's, you know, wrong to buy sex, which I don't think it is. But but putting that aside, um, what we see is that the anti-client laws, when they are actually even used to arrest men at all, are just another excuse to arrest the same people who, you know, the police are always going after. So there was this article that just came out a few months ago, or, or maybe even, yeah, like December 2020 in ProPublica about the NYPD doing busts on clients. They ne almost never arrest white men, first of all. 
Second of all, they entrap people. So even if, you know, someone isn't buying sex, okay, well, they're, you know, they're walking home. Some guy's walking home in his own neighborhood and they'll have an undercover cop go up to him and be like, oh, hey, you know, uh, could, could you walk with me? And he thinks, oh, well, you know, here's this woman walking alone at night. She wants me to walk with her. That's the right thing to do. Next thing he knows, he's being arrested, you know, maybe getting his face put all over associated, you know, with with supposed prostitution can lose his job, all all these consequences. So I so I don't understand, you know, how anybody could believe this fantasy that somehow, you know, we're going to sick, you know, the agents of state violence of the white supremacist state on people, be that the police or ICE or whatever, and that somehow the people who, you know, uh, uh, suffer for that are going to be you know, rich white guys, it, it just doesn't make any sense. So in a very simple way to address this question, what would decriminalization and decarceration mean? Um, also, it would mean less people in jail and less people being arrested and less people experiencing violence and trauma and violent traumatic assaults from the cops. And I mean, that's, that's enough for me. Um, Like, I don't think people should be arrested for buying or selling sex. And I think that these policies cause very real violent harm to my communities and but like and that that's it um and there's a way in which that question is also a little deeper where it's like decriminalization means a lot of my wildest dreams have come true because we have completely shifted the political landscape to a place where that feels like a possible conversation to be had. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of opti- there's a lot of things to be more optimistic about now than 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but it's so slow and it's so precarious that like, it doesn't seem worth arguing with leftists about decrim to me anymore when I would rather take that energy sort of inwards um, because it's, (laughs) it's not a thing that wins allies. It's not a thing that seems to, (sighs) it like, (sighs) I don't know. It seems like a dream that is very, very important to the people who have that harm done against their communities. And I would like less harm done. So I have no problem arguing with people on Twitter because so much of my research involves being online literally all of the time. But one, I'm getting old. And two, I am simply too high all of the time to deal with it anymore. So I tend to just block people who get into the horophobic weeds more these days. But I think a lot of the issue with decrim, especially for leftists, is that it involves 
addressing a lot of really harmful and really deep-seated preconceived notions about sex work. I got into an argument with some people that I considered community um, a couple weeks, maybe a couple months ago, because I said that part of the part of the task of tackling decriminalization is understanding that the way that we define pimps, the way that we define pimping means that decriminalization means pimps are not a bad thing. Especially when you are a full service sex worker, community is a privilege. Safety is a privilege. The ability to know that you have a place to lay your head down when you can be evicted for how you earn a living, that's a privilege. So the whole concept of, well, all traffickers are bad and all sex work is good, it, it completely misses the point. And I just don't think that a lot of people are there yet. So when we talk about decriminalization and we talk about the fact that brothel owners and agency owners are also pimps, and that means that the work that they're doing, and if you don't want to call it work, that's fine because they're quite literally taking money. But for some people, the ability to not have to screen clients, the ability to go home to a safe place every night, the ability to always have a ride waiting, that's worth half of your take. And in order to protect people, in order to provide services to people that are currently criminalized, that means that people we might find morally objectionable, including pimps, also have to be decriminalized because sending people to prison for the crime of protecting marginalized people is not decriminalization. It doesn't lead to decarceration. It leads to more people in prison and it leads to more sex workers in jail, assaulted and dead. And I, I, I hate to be like a galaxy brain meme, but I just don't think that enough people are there yet that we can have an honest conversation about what decriminalization looks like because so many people are still stuck on sex work good, trafficking bad. But their definition of trafficking is based on propaganda that supports the police and supports vice squads and supports DHS Blue and Polaris and all of these organizations that exist for the sole purpose of criminalizing trans people and people of color. Sorry, I was reading the comments. You're good. Um, so building onto that, right? So you're, you're kind of saying we're not there yet. People are not there yet. Um, what are the intersections of transphobia and whorephobia um, within this discussion then? I just finished writing an article about this and it always comes back to white supremacy. Transphobia is white supremacy. Transphobia is based on a white Western European ideal of what feminine and masculine looks like. It's based on traditional gender roles. It's based on colonialism and you can't have slaves unless people fit into very specific gender roles and they reproduce along those lines. All of those, everything comes back to white supremacy, but <laughs> horophobia specifically, there's an intersection there because trans people go into sex work. A lot of time tr trans kids go into sex work because they don't have homes right? They're forced out onto the street by the people that are supposed to protect them. And for so many trans kids, especially in major metro areas, sex work is quite literally the only means of survival. And 
it's even more basic than sex for money for a for a lot of people it's sex for a place to sleep at night it's sex for food all of those things that a lot of us older sex workers take for granted because we've been in the game for a little bit longer you know we have established um communities established circles we're able to trade clothing we're able to trade food childcare, all of those things amongst each other but for a lot of trans kids those networks are not already established so they're quite literally having sex for food from a bodega or whatever it is which is why those walking while trans laws are so ubiquitous so started cropping up around the 1970s just before the AIDS crisis that's not a coincidence but it happened because trans kids didn't have a home to go to they were trading sex and the police said we have to get all of these trans kids especially all of these black and brown trans kids off the street so they started arresting them and now those walking while trans laws are starting to be repealed but cops still have a great deal of discretion in who they can and cannot go after and we already know that the cops have a bias against black and brown people. We already know that they target black and indigenous people astronomically more than any other group. When you combine that with the inherent white supremacy that is in police structures, and you combine that with how transphobia is informed by white supremacy, of course the cops are going to go after trans people and they're going to say that they're doing it because they have to combat the trafficking problem. But what they're really doing is saying, you don't look like what I think a woman looks like. I think you're a whore. I'm going to put you in jail. I think there's also a an intersection of anti-sex work activism and anti-trans political advocates. I'm thinking especially of England right now because they're really coming up in power in some truly terrifying ways. And that's, it's like the same people going after both prongs at the same time through both policy Um and, you know, it, it comes down to this similar ideology and this similar idea of sort of liberal saviorism. And there's a lot of white feminist bullshit wrapped up in there. And at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, it's still heavily policing the movements and economies of poor trans people and especially black trans people and especially trans people of color and especially trans women. And so there's a lot of ideological overlap, but when it, you know, again, if we're, if we're looking at this from material analysis, it's, it's policing sex work is policing trans people and sort of whatever we think about why that is, that's how, like, that's who is getting arrested. That is who is getting stopped by the police. That is who is getting assaulted by the police in the biggest numbers. Um, so, so, this, so there's the connection. Is the 
there's this same pattern too, uh, you know, with with supposed comrades coming in as though the organizing that's already happening isn't there. And I know that was a big problem here, uh, you know, from from the 70s, maybe to the early 2000s, uh, where there were there was a lot of um, Marxist analysis that was very materially harmful to trans people and especially to trans women. And it was the same just total lack of investigation and total failure to listen um, and I think, you know, the red the red flag that you see there is that people aren't getting services. So you can have whatever you idea you want, as as shitty and nonsensical as it is, uh, you know, about trans people and about trans women in, in particular. But at the end of the day, it's like, OK, well, you know, w- when all this is going on, you, you have women's shelters that aren't letting trans women in and they don't have anywhere to go. You know, that seems like a pretty big red flag that you're not you're not meeting people's material needs. Um, And it does have the same, all of this stuff has like the same ideological basis as well. Ultimately, it is just about this categorization of acceptable or respectable, respectable versus, you know, bad or, you know, not respectable or deviant or however you want to put it, women. It's, it's, and that benefits a lot of people, including a lot of women. You know, uh, being able to position yourself uh, above other people, uh, you know, there there can be real material benefit from that. And and we see it all the time in all kinds of contexts where people, you know, will do that to get whatever crumbs they can. And I, and I think that's that's where where a lot of that's coming from. The link between anti-sex work rhetoric and and anti-trans rhetoric has always fascinated me because it's so obvious how people interested in demonizing sex work um, in the the way that they often use violent and pornographic descriptions of sex work. There's a sort of gender essentialism ensconced in these descriptions because of what sex organs and the essentialism of sex organs represent to them. These descriptions pivot specifically around penetrative sex. There's a lot of talk about how many penises sex workers touch and are penetrated by, right? And often in these descriptions, it's a woman prostitute being being penetrated by multiple customers' penises. There's a lot of really, really graphic descriptions of sexual acts coming from uh, anti-sex rhetoric. And it's interesting because it's, to them, the penis is signifying like an exercise of power, right? That a penis entering a vagina is an exercise of dominance and exploitation and inherently so because they believe that your sex organs are somehow inherently tied up to your very being, like your spiritual state of being. So to them, if the penis is a sort of a signifier of power and dominance, then by definition, that means that a multiply penetrated vagina signifies degradation and exploitation, right? So to them, the penis itself holds a sort of spiritual implication, right? That with by touching enough penises, by, by being penetrated by enough of them, that you could, that your very soul could be sullied, that your very state of being is somehow less than because of those interactions. And these people, they speak of prostitutes as though their interactions with penises is indicative of who they are, 
of their value. And I think that's one of the links between swerfs and turfs is this gender essentialism that says that what you do with your sex organs is who you are. I'm sorry for laughing, Marla, but you said that and then my brain, like I said, I have ADHD, so my brain was like, how many penises have I touched? The answer is a lot. It's a lot. Well, also, how are we defining touch then? Like, are we accounting, are we counting the ones that I was paid to kick? Is that a touch? Like, it gets really complicated really quickly. And it, it all does take on this like metaphysical meaning, which is just endlessly frustrating when people think they're doing dialectical material analysis and really they're doing, you know, se sex has magic powers. Like this whole thing about like penetration, that's like, you know, those are the lines that it's always been across, like what gets criminalized or what the church says is a sin or whatever. Like it's totally caught up in these like religious ideas. And then, you know, just these these like deeply subjective things like, you know, the idea that touching a penis is different than touching someone's back or, you know, whatever other kinds of touch or things we do with our bodies at different jobs. Um, it really does like rely on this idea that sex is this magical thing. And I always feel like there's just something so embarrassing about it. Like for the people who are doing that, it's like, okay, you do, you have sex and, or whatever. And it just feels so amazing to you that you've decided that it's magic and that's going to override like any, you know, actual information, just that it feels like so crazy good or whatever. Um, so, so it's actually, it's, it's, it's comical in a way, but you know, the, the, it, it's, it's incredible also, uh, and kind of horrifying, like how far people get with this and how all in people are for it and how people can say, oh, you know, um, who we are is, is really reliant uh, and, our, and our, our ideas depend on context, but somehow they think that two, you know, the past 2000 years of these specific Christian ideas about sex haven't affected them when clearly that's where they're coming from is like from, from whatever ideas about sex, you know, that, that they were exposed to throughout their upbringing or whatever. I just think it's funny that no one had a problem with Hot Girl Summer, but when whores enter the chat, then suddenly too much sex is a bad thing. Like, am I, is being a slut a good thing? But only if I'm not getting paid for it. Cause like, have you met straight men? I should be getting compensation for it. People who know nothing about sex work markets and, and rates for prostitution will speak about uh, touching dicks and, and, and being penetrated by dicks. Like they'll, they'll talk about uh, how horrible it must be to, to have to have sex with all these penises. And, and they'll, they'll, they'll just think of absurd numbers, right? 27 dicks a day for the average prostitute, right? Like they're so obsessed with how many dicks we're touching. And all I can think about when people throw that number out, 27 dicks a day, I'm like, that's potentially a lot of money. Like business is booming, in my opinion, if, if that's what's going. If I'm touching 27 dicks a day, I'm walking out of the club with like three grand. <laughs> like, and I don't, I don't, is that degrading? I don't know. I, I don't think anybody else should be able to speak on, on what I feel is sexually degrading, but me.
Okay. Um, you all have like covered so many of these questions. So organically it's, yeah. Um, so, okay, let's jump to the last one. Um, in regards to sex work and liberation theory in general, what is the importance of survival, community, self-defense, protection? Um, I'll jump on this one. And uh, so when we started Horker's Army was in early 2016, and it came up organically in that some of us who had been sex workers and friends and organizers had realized we had been collectively going through a whole bunch of trauma and violence just sort of as a community. Um, my friend and co-founder Vanessa Carlisle has an essay that kind of goes through our history and some of the foundations of her own self-defense training. And a lot of it was just how bad self-defense training is in general, um, especially self-defense training aimed towards women. And there's basically no self-defense training aimed at like queer communities as a thing. And so much of that training, and we've seen a lot of it this week on the internet, is based on stranger danger when so much of the violence that we experience is intimate partners, family, and cops. And there is no preparation at all for any of those three, nor are there any systems or programs for healing from that. Well, there are, but not for sex workers. We've talked about women's shelters that don't allow trans women. Most shelters don't allow sex workers. Um, it's... <laughs> It, this goes through uh, domestic abuse situations too. Other other resources that might be available locally are are just not. Um, and so for us, it was also about building a space where sex workers' lives are important and the priority, and we have a space where we say our bodies matter and our safeties matter and we get to protect them. And that is in fact, something we train for and celebrate because the vast majority of the messaging is that sex workers don't get to protect our boundaries. Um, and it is occasionally shocking to me at how accepted that belief is that sex workers don't have boundaries or are unrapeable, which there is legal precedent that sex worker bodies are unrapeable, which is, and <laughs> anyway, so we very clearly need some form of community protection. Um, and for us, that means so much, you know, we do have, physical self-defense skills that we teach each other. Some of them come from jujitsu. Some of them come from, well, most of them come from jujitsu, but some of them are much more simple and based on just boundary crossing. Like you're touching my shoulder and I don't like it. How do I get my, how do I get your hand off my shoulder? 
you're trying to pull me in for a close handshake. We've seen that move televised. We've got to move for that. So if you find someone doing that to you, you can be like, oh, no, I know how to, like, your body has training to respond to it. And that was training and support that, like, I had never experienced that. Um, Like, that had never occurred to me as a thing that I could do, practice protecting my own physical space and boundaries. Um, And the way we set up Hooker's Army is that it's half of our meetings are spent on emotional support and peer support and generally checking in with each other. And it's whoever's in the room, however they came to the room, we try to meet their needs where they're at. We have people stumble in drunk from the bar next door. We have people come in crying too hard to talk. And it's a, all right, you need a glass of water? We can get a glass of water. You need to sit down for five minutes? We we will find a chair. We will make a space. Um, if we're practicing, um, you know, like getting out of a chokehold and someone starts having a trauma response, we stop the training. It's not an embarrassment thing. The priority is taking care of each other and protecting each other. And one of the things we've that I've found is that when we talk about our, oh, our just our emotional support space, the space where people just have time to chat, like, no, we're just gonna get people in the same room. And I I try not to say this in public, but we kind of trick them into organizing because that's actually what organizing is is like getting together and helping each other. And all of a sudden we have like breakout selfie workshops. We trade client tips. We, we like go through text messages together. Um, our last virtual meeting, people started making rides to vaccine sites that they had heard about. Um, so for us, self-defense and protection is a whole system of care that we implement partly in kind of a shitty sense that, that it's not something we have access to outside of ourselves, that the only people who show up for whores are other whores. Um, and that sucks, but it's just kind of true. So we're going to, if we're passing around the same 20 bucks in our community for like two years, we're going to try to make that 20 bucks, 50 bucks. And you know what? Like it is small and it is a harm reductionist sort of thing, but we have good stories. Like, but we also have small successes and we have people getting out of shitty situations that could have turned into worse situations. And I think most importantly to me is we have a whole network of sex workers now all across the country where if somehow like a friend of a friend texts and is like, hey, someone needs a ride in this city and we don't really know that like there's a network that gets activated. Um, And so pretty much all of our sex work organizing resources are underground, unfunded, uh, no institutional support, no ideological support. And, and so at this point, and sort of my 
organizing and sort of like, well, great, fuck it. We're going to take our own resources and we're going to help our own communities. And, and we're going to center our own material reality because it's the material reality of our lives. Um, and so we're going to center healing from trauma. We're going to center the cops as perpetrators of that trauma. Um, and uh, that's, that's pretty much what we do. I just want to say one thing on this topic that I think a lot of people don't realize. And that's when you, when you criminalize us, you criminalize our organizing. So, uh, for example, uh, I was involved with this organization, Desiree Alliance, which was an amazing org. You know, we have a big conference that um, we, you meet all these different sex workers. There's there's an element of it that's, you know, political and about our organizing. Also, you know, skill shares, uh, exchanging safety information, you know, um, just just, you know, really a really beautiful thing that, you know, was, re- you know, really helped a lot of different people. And uh, Desiree, when when Sesta Fosta passed, the the law is written in a way where it could be used to, you know, convict, uh, you know, Desiree Alliance of sex trafficking for having a for having this conference. So they they decided uh, that they had to shut down uh, because they, you know, that's a that's a felony. That's a you know some pretty serious shit. Um, so, so that, that, and, and exchanging, you know, exchanging safety information in general, um, and, and helping each other, you know, when you criminalize us, it's, it's very easy to constitute that as, as, uh, trafficking or pimping or, you know, wh- whatever, you know, under, to, to make it fit under one of these umbrella terms is like a way, another way to criminalize us. Um, personally, I don't consider myself an organizer. Um, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that term, that an activist, it's not something that I'm comfortable taking on. However, um, I think a huge part of where I feel my resources are best directed, especially as a freelance writer, is helping to redefine how we talk about harm and who commits harm, um, I, I'm not going to say her name because it's going to start a whole shit storm, but there is a white trans woman that has been harassing and stalking sex workers for, God, almost 10 years at this point. And she impersonated and stalked me for the better part of a year. She tried to have me deported. She reported me to the school board and said that I was molesting children and no one would do anything about it because I mean, it's not like I could go to the police. The fact that I was an escort at the time made it impossible. But aside from that, as a Black woman in Miami, the the child of two immigrants, it's just not something that I was ever going to do. And I didn't have a choice because she tried to have me deported and the FBI came to my door, which is one of the most terrifying experiences in my life. But having said all of that, People outside of other sex workers simply did not care. One, because she is a trans woman, and two, because she's white. I am the first person to say that I don't trust white women. It, 
very rarely do I. I think that white women cause a lot of harm, unconscious or conscious, especially to people of color. But I think that when we talk about the ways that people harm each other, and when we talk about things like restorative justice and transformative justice, we have to be honest about who is causing harm. I have faced far more harm at the hands of white women, at the hands of TERFs, SWERFs, so-called trafficking activists, whatever they're calling themselves now, I faced far more harm from them than I ever have from cishet white male clients because there's a relationship, there's respect, there's the establishment of boundaries. White women on the internet don't have those boundaries because they simply believe that they're right. And especially as a sex worker, I think that the ways that we define harm and the ways that we define who is causing harm is a crucial part of any type of organizing around keeping sex workers safe. And I mean, even outside of that, just to go back to the whole thing about, well, all sex workers are exploited, you know, sex workers can't consent, blah, blah, blah. I was far more exploited in my three AmeriCorps terms than I ever was selling my cooter on the internet. So (laughs) I made much better money. I had much better living circumstances. But when I was in AmeriCorps, I was making $400 every two weeks. And I had to work a full-time job as a retail manager, which is a totally different kind of hell. But that was just to make ends meet. That, And I was still on food stamps at the time. So I think that changing the conversation about what harm, what exploitation looks like as a sex worker is a huge part of organizing. And I don't think that we can, and when I say we, I don't mean sex workers, but I don't think that we as a society are ever going to get anywhere meaningful until we start being honest about what harm actually looks like for people that have agency because we're adults and we have that. I want to speak specifically on mutual aid and survival because I think sex working communities are very unique in that our almost all of our respective industries are very feast or famine. And when you're in a sex working community, often there are people who are earning a lot and have a lot of cash flow. And then there are people who are very vulnerable, earning very little uh, survival sex workers, um, trying to make ends meet in real time, day to day. Um, sex working to afford their motel room that night, sex working to afford the food that they're going to eat in the next 24, 48 hours. And so when it comes to things like mutual aid, which we just saw an explosion of um, uh, during COVID times, um, kind of at the beginning of last year, of last spring, um, all these dozens and dozens of mutual aid organizations run by and for sex workers were popping up in different cities. And a lot of them were only able to be sustained and only able uh, to to give um, this cash honoraria to their fellow sex workers because there's this churn of cash and this cash flow through sex working communities that isn't necessarily uh, replicable in in other very poor communities, right? Um, in sex work, 
because it's feast or famine, you're often in times where you're earning, you know, more than you could have ever imagined, right? The the most that I was earning at a single time averaged out to, I want to say like 75K a year, right? And with that kind of income, what could I do? I could afford to hand over $500 at a time to a mutual aid organization. I could afford to do that because of sex work. I could afford to help a survival sex worker because I myself was earning an income through this illegal market. So that kind of cash flow that you see in sex working communities that sustained a lot of mutual aid organizations, I think is quite unique to a lot of sex working communities, not to say that it doesn't exist in other poor vulnerable communities, but just that the way that it's able to sustain our, to, to sustain itself in our communities is, is very unique and something um, it's a strength of our community that a lot of sex workers were able to put into practice uh, through COVID times, through mutual aid organizations. I just wanna follow up on that. And the one thing I've seen in sex working friend groups is a tradition of mutual aid that I don't see. I, that's not true. I see it in some other poor marginalized communities, but I feel like I see it in a more organized sort of way where I see sex workers engaging in essentially mutual aid networks without the official um, money thing. Like Gemma's mentioning that uh, she started this amazing Marxist reading group. Um, but what she hasn't said is there's been a whole lot of trading of like 20 bucks here, 50 bucks there, help pay a phone bill, help hire someone to proofread a thing um, that it, I don't know if there's been another situation like the closest thing I can think of is church groups where it's socially it's not just socially accepted it's it's like a practice of taking care of each other and of mutual aid in the sense of, I think it's really been bothering me seeing a lot of leftist mutual aid conversation that almost sounds like charity, which is a different thing. Like as if mutual aid is you just give your money and then these people have your money where for me, mutual aid has always been, again, because what you were saying about the feast or famine, it's because, you know, next year you might not be in that position and you could, and that same friend might be bailing you out next year. Um, but I think there's a comfort in that that I've felt in sex working communities that that I haven't seen in other places. And I have to believe it exists in other places. Um, I don't think we're that mess. I mean, we are, of course. We do, of course, have magical sex powers. That is true. Um, that is a fact. Uh, so we are special and magical and unique in a lot of ways. Um, and, and this one feels like it. I've, I feel like I've seen sex workers show up for each other in more concrete. It definitely. It's the only time I've seen white women show up for each other. Like that's not, that's not actually a thing culturally we tend to do. Um, so 
I'm not sure how much of it is sort of, again, the sort of because we've had to, because there's been a lack of access and therefore we're gonna, that we're gonna figure it the fuck out. But so, you know, with, with everything, there is sort of a dark and light side to this, but I do think we've figured out that our money doesn't necessarily belong to us and that money is a sort of fictional resource that we can use as we will, as we will it. Um, So I actually have a theory on this based on a small bit of research, but um, criminalized communities tend to engage in mutual aid more because they don't have access to, to all right, take two, because they don't have tradition or access to traditional banking and financial institutions. So something like 25% of Black people don't have a bank. Those numbers are probably outdated because the last time I looked at it was like three years ago. But something like 25% of Black people and something like 40% of low-income people don't have access to bank accounts. And I know that in migrant communities, especially um, there's what's called a pot in specific geographic locations where um, more established immigrant families will put money into a community pot. And when a new immigrant family moves into the neighborhood, they have access to that pot until they're able to get stable and get on their feet. And they then replenish the money and like, the whole process starts over again and people keep putting money back in so that no one ever has to. Well, I mean, they don't have access to things like unemployment and food stamps and all of those resources that are meant to fill the gap or whatever the government is calling it now. But criminalized communities especially take care of each other because no one else is going to. So I don't think people ever call it that but on twitter the most common fundraising post the most common mutual aid posts that you're going to see are going to be for drug users they're going to be for trans people and they're going to be for sex workers because they don't have access to banking structures i don't know if you guys have ever tried to be a sex worker on venmo or cash app but it's literally hell and everything that you do is monitored and like an eggplant emoji can get all of your money taken from you. And I tell people all of the time, cash out immediately. And they're like, but the fees. And I'm like, fuck the fees, eat the fees, take your money. It's yours. They will take it from you. They don't care. PayPal is quite literally the worst. And I don't recommend using it unless you absolutely have to. But all of that said, mutual aid, I think the phrase mutual aid is relatively common, but like the practice of passing around the same 20, 30, $40 it's really a very old practice. And I think that part of the reason that I have such frustration with leftists is that they co-opt things that they like and they slap shiny new labels on them. And then they completely leave out all of the people that are maybe not as politically aligned with them because they don't want to do the work of like addressing that's where they got their ideas from. All right, you all. Um, if there's anything that you all would like to close with, um, any other um, 
organizing work, um, groups that you'd like to shout out, anything like that. Um, we definitely want to make sure that gets in. I just want to say support whose corner is it anyway. Um, it is a mutual aid group that supports drug users that sell sex. And it's the only organization that I know of that has been doing it well before the pandemic. Uh, I'll, I'll plug the reading group. If there are any sex workers listening who would be interested in reading uh, theory with other sex workers, it's called Horvolution. So that's W-H-O underscore. Is Am I doing this right? Lauren, am I saying this right? I'll put it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Volution. V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N. I'm pretty sure that's it, but I'll copy paste it in the chat too. That's the Twitter. Yeah, there you go. That's the Twitter. Uh, DM us. It also has our email and everything on there. And uh, we read really cool stuff. Uh, just, just to to give a little information about what we read. So uh, our, our first round, we read some more um, sort of foundational stuff. We read Lenin, we read Mao, we read Fanon. Uh, and and now though, uh, we've we've sort of, uh, oh no, we're on our third reading list now, I guess. So, but we've, re- we've really expanded. So we're reading, um, right now we're doing like a trans studies unit, or I think we just wrapped that up. Uh, but but we're just reading about all different kinds of cool stuff. And you don't need to be uh, a communist or any, you know, have any specific ideology. Anybody who just wants to, uh, you know, read stuff with other sex workers and talk about it. Uh, it it's a really great group. We also have absolutely no tolerance for like uh, snobbery or anything. Uh, people are at all different levels, uh, you, you know. Uh, and, and we just don't tolerate any of that. So, so this is a good opportunity because, you know, uh, having tried to join pretty much every communist party in this entire country, they're all riddled with swerfs. Um, so, you know, and, and they really should try to fix it and you should contact us and actually listen to us and we'll tell you, yes, and that's true too. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the Twitter's on there. You can DM us and, and, you know, anytime we'll talk to you about what you need to do to support sex workers in your organization. Cause you're not, you're not fucking doing it. Or I wouldn't have to, you know, uh, defect from every group in rage. Um, also to sex workers out there, if you're interested in joining hookers army, um, we don't have an internet presence, which is getting increasingly annoying, but you can email us at, at hadirtysouth at protonmail.com. That's uh, Harker's Army Dirty South. And um, we have our first public self-defense workshop coming up on March 31st and I'll drop a link to that as well. It's a self-defense basics for sex workers and queers and people who love us and yeah so that's a um I forgot to say this but also support hacking hustling um it is a collective of sex workers and academics that work to teach sex workers and just people who are criminalized online how to exist in virtual spaces um, with as little harm as possible, whatever that means. Uh, 
Thank you. Could you share that link, AJ? And uh, thanks. Marla, did you want, I just want to make sure. Anything you want to share? You're good. Okay. Well, thank you all so much for joining us, sharing space with us, um, educating us and the people. Um, we really appreciate you all. I know some of y'all here today because y'all think jail is cool. But see, y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. I ain't cool about jail, nigga. Cool I've been here 10 years and I ain't never getting out. Never. I ain't do much, just kill somebody. It ain't like the nigga ain't have it coming. He sure did. See, y'all think it's just about us in here, but this is about an oppressive up system designed to keep niggas down and y'all wouldn't know nothing about that what about you little nigga you know about that yes oh you know about that tell me what you know about that tell me what you think about that the prison industrial complex is a system situated at the intersection of government and private interests it uses prisons as a solution to social political and economic problems it includes human rights violations the death penalty slave labor policing courts the media political prisoners and the elimination of Nigga, did you just say what I was trying to say, but smarter? 